Welcome to the True Crime Squad. I'm Christy Brower here with my sister, co-host, and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey, Katie. Hello. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Yeah. People may notice we're we're a little late to the game this week because we were on vacation. We were playing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll tell you all about it tonight on Case Updates, but we had a super fun weekend. We did. We had a super fun weekend, took an awesome trip, took our Labor Day off and did not labor, mm. you know, stuff like that. We labored not. Yeah. <laughs> we had a couple of you reach out to us. Are you girls okay? We haven't seen anything. We're fine. We're just enjoying the end of summer. Yeah. yeah. Just doing stuff. But there's like big stuff happening in the true crime world. So we've been in the background oh, doing quite a bit of research and working on have. stuff. Just haven't made it in front of the camera quite yet. So here we are. Most definitely. So here we are for today. We're going to be talking about Lori Vallow's appeal that has just been filed by mm-hmm. uh, her attorney, Jim Archibald. Currently, her only attorney of record is Jim Archibald. Uh, John Thomas has been released from her case. And actually, we know that Jim has also been released from her case as of today, and she has a new appellant public defender. We don't know who that is yet, but we wanted to talk a little bit about what's happening. Her case is moving now into the appeals process. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to kind of explain what that means from a legal standpoint, because things are much different now. Yeah. First of all, they're way slower. The appeals process takes years to complete and will likely see major slowdowns due to her being extradited to Arizona to be tried in two separate cases. So the first thing to not get worried about is that she's getting out of jail anytime soon. She's not. Oh, no. Not at all. And this is standard procedure for um, defense attorneys. So the first thing that happened is Archibald did appeal to Judge Boyce was some mm-hmm. things that he felt could maybe that Judge Judge Boyce could have reversed his own decisions that happened back when the sentencing was happening, and Judge Boyce said, "Yeah, no, I'm not doing that." Yeah, and that's called the court of last resort. So that's the opportunity to go back to the judge one more time and say, "Are you sure you weren't wrong about this stuff?" Mm-hmm. And as we know, Boyce was most definitely clear that he was not. But but but, but Judge 404B. 404B, Judge, 404B. No, and we'll get to 404B in a few minutes, but... Still no. So Boyce was like, yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm not, over, I'm not overturning anything I did. Mm-hmm. So now it's moved... Her case has moved into the appeals process. She's no longer a defendant. She's an appellant. Uh-huh. And a defendant means they're defending themselves from being convicted. Uh-huh. She's convicted. She's sentenced. An appellant is the person who is appealing their conviction. Uh So if you see her being referred to as an appellant, that's why she is now convicted and in the appeals process. Uh However, when she's extradited to Arizona, she will again become a defendant in Arizona. Definitely. In those cases, she is. Uh Um, But it's a little different deal because we're not, 
Yeah. You know, when someone is a defendant, we have, you know, guilty until or not guilty until proven or innocent. Let me say it the right way. Innocent <laughs> until proven guilty. That's what our <laughs> I knew you were going to get there. Part. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that is no longer her right that we, she has mm -hmm. no option of innocence now because she's been convicted. So now she's an appellant and she is starting her case is starting through the appeals process. So the appeals process is managed by the Supreme Court of the state of Idaho in Idaho. Katie, you learned that Idaho does their appeals differently than only three states do their appeal, appeals the way that we do them. Yeah, there's different ways for their appeals to be uh, structured. Idaho's is known as the deflective structure. Uh, essentially meaning that the Supreme Court will look at the appeal and either deflect it back to an appeals court or they'll keep it themselves. There's actually only three states in the country that do it this way. That is Idaho, Iowa, and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I have no opinion on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Personally, I, I have no idea, really. I just don't know. Yeah. I would say it's probably not. Uh, we don't have that many in Idaho. Maybe that's why it's this way. And that is. But, but, yeah. I would think it's it's a population the issue. Appeals court in Idaho has actually only been a thing since uh, the early 80s because we oh, just wow. didn't have enough cases to worry about that. And then uh, I think in 1981 is when uh, the Supreme Court went, we need some help because uh, ah, they were getting the more. Court. And so the appellate court was born. Yeah. Okay. So the appeal has to be filed within 42 days of sentencing. So that's why time timing wise, this is happening now. Mm -hmm. um, so the appeal goes to the Idaho Supreme Court, along with a transcript of uh, Lori, Lori's trial. Mm -hmm. And um, J Jim Archibald is requesting transcripts that have to be unsealed in order for this to happen of her competency hearings, pretrial hearings and sentencing hearings. So anything that was sealed relating to her competency has to be unsealed so that the Supreme Court can get a copy of it. I don't think that means we get to see it. I think it's just that the Supreme Court gets to. But yeah. the Supreme Court is going to get, as we know, a voluminous amount of evidence <laughs> presented at trial and everywhere, you know, and in all mm -hmm. of these hearings. Yeah, and then they're going to decide what they're going to do. The Idaho Attorney General actually will assign a lawyer to represent the prosecution in this mm -hmm. case. And the state has just appointed an appellate attorney who is a public defender appellate attorney who will represent Lori mm -hmm. in this case. That decision was just made today. Yes. And so what we know that it happened, but we haven't seen the paperwork yet. Probably won't see that until tomorrow or the next day. That's kind of how information rolls out with the state. Uh, when they do, though, and we know the name of that appellate uh, attorney, we'll certainly do a little research on them and let you know what we know. But uh, yeah. here we are moving into another stage of Lori having new attorneys. New attorney. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know anything about appellate attorneys. I, I've not really followed a case clear into this appeals process before in Idaho. So like we know, we know these public defenders, we know these prosecutors. Mm -hmm. I don't know who the appellate attorneys are in the area mm -hmm. that could be taking on this case. But as soon as we know, we will let you know more. And if it's someone maybe we'll money, be surprised. We'll yeah. <laughs> we might be, you know, it, it seems like so. it's kind of a an expertise kind of thing and yeah. an attorney that's experienced with the appeals process. Mm -hmm. 
So let's just talk through the um, appeal uh, that has been filed. Mm-hmm. And this was filed um, by Jim Archibald at the same time that he's requesting to be removed from the case because he's not an appellate attorney. That's not his thing. Mm-hmm. So here are um, the things that they want to see addressed. And, and they taught, you know, it's discussed in the, in the filing, you know, that this is why she has the right to, you know, she's had a judgment um, of conviction and all of that. So now she's ready to start appealing that conviction. Yeah. So here are the questions that they have brought up. And I will say that this is a definite throw all the spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks kind of appeal because sure. it's basically everything you could imagine. So the first is, did the court err in determining that she was competent to stand trial in her hearing on April 11th of 2022? Yeah. This was after 10 months in a, in a psych hospital. Um, now, the judge did make this final decision, but it's not like he made it on his own. This right. was based on recommendations from um, the doctors and therapists from the Department of Health and Welfare who had been yeah. working with Lori. Yep. And all of that information will be provided to the court. And so they'll look at all of that and say, okay, well, all of the experts here said yes. So did he err? Likely not, but. Right. So then did the court err in ordering on November 15th of 2022 that uh, the court denied the defense experts request to send the defendant back to the mental hospital rather than proceed to trial. So at that point, they had to determine competency. Remember, it had to be 90 days prior to the beginning of the trial. Right. She had to be determined competent or not competent. And once that determination is made of competent, then she will be competent to stand trial. You can't. Right you know, five minutes before a trial, at least in Idaho, come forward and say, no, she's not competent anymore. Mm -hmm. And again, that was done with recommendations from the state evaluators. And, you know, apparently there were defense experts who said, no, she needed to go back to the mental hospital, Mm -hmm. to the, to the state hospital. And um, the judge overruled that. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what was said. We don't know who evaluated. We don't know any of those things. What we believe we know, and of course, uh, we have had really good sources that uh, yeah. uh, have helped us along the way. And one thing that we had been uh, at least informed of, and, and so again, know that these are things we certainly can't prove, but things that we were told by trusted sources, is mm-hmm. that she had wasn't taking her medication. So when yes. she was discharged from the hospital, she had been medicated. She was back on her horse you know she was Mm -hmm. uh straightened out to to whatever degree uh she can be and once she got back to the hospital and so we're talking about between april and november so she had what a good six months there Mm -hmm. she had quit taking her medicine there has been some misinformation out there that the 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 jail was forcefully medicating lori that isn't true There was no order for the jail to forcefully medicate. Lori had the right to decide whether she wanted to take her medication or not. And she wasn't. Mm -hmm. That may have been part of the decision of the court that she has the tools to be sane and participate. And if she's not going to, essentially that's her choice. That's my opinion. I don't know that's true, but that's my opinion. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we also know 
that sometime around Christmas time, her attorneys talked her into taking her meds. Mm-hmm. And remember that really crazy trip to court where Court TV filmed her face the whole time? And yes, and was she was so incongruent and, and wild. Yeah. Staring off into space, giggling while they were talking about her dead son, and everybody was right. so outraged. And we were like, "Ah, uh, yeah, that's mental health." She was hallucinating. Like, hold on. Yeah, she, she was not well. Totally bananas. Yeah. Well, it was right about that time when her attorneys convinced her to start taking her medication, yeah. and she did. And then we saw a much more sane Lori at trial. So mm-hmm. there was a period there where she was probably pretty wild. And then, when did she quit taking her meds? Because we had a pretty wild Lori at the sentencing. We did. And, and there have been a lot of people conjecture that after she was convicted that she has stopped her medication. Mm-hmm. And, and definitely what we've seen in court since mm-hmm. her conviction does yeah. kind of track with that. She's, yeah. there's a not well look in her eye and her responses yeah. to things have changed quite a bit. And mm-hmm. yeah, so... You know, these are our guesses, but they are based mm-hmm. on, you know, some legitimate yeah. information. Yeah. But that that's kind of where we think things stand with that. Mm-hmm. Again, it'll be wild when she gets, because in the, and now she's in prison, they are also not going to force her to take her meds. The only no. way they can force her to take her meds is with a court order. The court's not going to order that unless she is a physical threat to herself right. or other people. She isn't. Right. It comes right down to danger to self or others. And, and she just isn't either mm-hmm. in either the, situation she just isn't no and the jail the prison none of them want to forcefully medicate they don't because that means mm-hmm. that they have to have a nurse come in and do it and track it and it's a huge pain in the ass and the state doesn't want to pay they for don't it. want it's very to. expensive yeah and so also they're there's only going to do that if it benefits them basically right and where she's not a risk they're just not going to do it. It isn't worth it to them. Also, there's mm-hmm. some degree of her having the right to decide whether she wants to take her meds or not. And she it's doesn't. very true. I mean, it is or a violation of her human rights as an adult mm-hmm. uh, to be forcefully medicated. And so it's just not something that's done unless it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. But again, in Idaho, there is no insanity plea. No. So if you've been given the tools to be sane and you have been hospitalized, and you have medication, and you have the ability to get there, and you refuse to take it, what you going to get? Yeah, sorry, bro, but you're, yeah, yeah. the state's not going to mess with that, not in the state. And I realize that, that Idaho is unusual in that respect, mm-hmm. that um, most states do have insanity defenses, but mm-hmm. welcome to the uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps state. Yeah. Now. Yeah. What will Arizona do with her? We don't know. Is Arizona going to extradite her and decide that she is, yeah, going straight back to the hospital for a little while and they're going to medicate her? And we don't know. We have no idea what will happen there. We don't know. But, you know, the fact that she's been through the competency process already and is convicted, those things are all going to color what Arizona does for sure. For sure. So then the appeal goes on to question if her right to speedy trial was violated first by repeated requests for a continuance from the government, which I find rather interesting because most of those actually came from the defense uh-huh. and from um, by the way that the court uh, set the trial, mm-hmm. which 
we know the answer to that is no. First of all, she spent 10 months in a psych hospital. Her speedy trial went right out the window at six months because she was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Then we have, um, you know, the whole argument that caused the severance of these two cases between her case and Chad with um, Lori, you know, demanding her right to speedy trial, which is her legal right, but she did not waive it. Chad did waive it. Mm-hmm. And there was the issue of that DNA evidence that I bet never gets processed that mm-hmm. Chad's defense said that prior said absolutely had to be processed before he could go to trial. That's mm-hmm. when they severed. Yeah. So there was an opportunity right there mm-hmm. to waive speedy trial. She didn't. And so they um, severed the trials in order for her case to go forward. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there are many grant much grounds there because there was a lot done there to make sure that that right was protected. Yeah. When they could. When right. they could. When they could. Yeah. Uh, next we have, did the court err in denying defense challenges for cause of trial jurors due to bias or hardship during jury selection? Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting because we don't actually know what this is in reference to. I think we have some guesses. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was the religious questions that were Mm -hmm. allowed in jury selection, which normally are not Mm -hmm. religious affiliation. I was thinking about the one grandma. Remember the grandma who picks her uh, grandson up and takes care of him after school. Mm -hmm. And she was like, basically she was kind of trying to say, I mean, that's going to be a hardship for me, for my daughter, for, you know, for her job, yada, yada. And they were like, well, is there anyone else? And she's like, well, I mean, my husband could probably do it, but uh, I don't know. And they were like, well, is there a daycare that could take him? And she's like, I mean, my daughter could probably find somebody. And so the defense was like, yeah, no, we don't want her. Let's let her go. And the judge was like, nah, she's in. Mm -hmm. That was the one that really stuck out to me because she was kind of like, because that's the only hardship one I can think of that we knew anything about. The only hardship one that I can think of that didn't uh, get dismissed. Right. And maybe there were more that I'm not uh, thinking about well, right now, but that was the one that really stuck with me. Yeah. Because there were certainly people on the jury that one of the things they did is they started cutting off the trial at three o'clock every day. Yeah. And that was because there were jurors who were actually going to work after their jury service Mm-hmm. in order to be able to work. And so there were definitely some some hardship mm-hmm. things that were, there were some accommodations made. But yeah, what, are That's they an interesting to point her? Because that decision hadn't been made yet uh, until they had already chosen the jury. Maybe the judge right. had that in mind all along and was like, hey, we're going to be done at three o'clock. Like that actually is probably not going to be an issue for her. Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, because I, you know, that it were originally they were going to go till five every day and then mm-hmm. they didn't. And they said it was to accommodate mm-hmm. work for jurors. Knowing that, yeah, so, this was going to be a long trial. Yeah. And there, we know that in the, because there was Wadir that was done publicly and then there was Wadir that was done in private. And the Wadir done in private, we believe, contained questions about religious affiliation, mm-hmm. which is usually not allowed in jury trials, Mm -hmm. but given the religious uh, connection with Lori, Mm -hmm. it kind of had to be in this one. So Mm -hmm. we'll see on that one. We don't know exactly what that's referencing, but I'm pretty sure it's something like that. 
Uh, did the government commit fundamental reversible error in its opening statement to the jury? Okay. I want to know if that is a typo. Yeah. Fundamental reversible error or irreversible error? What was that meant to say? Was it reversible in that the judge could have reversed it and didn't? Or was it irreversible? It is right from the right from out of the gate. They immediately started connecting up the Idaho case in the, mm -hmm. the Idaho cases with the Arizona cases. And mm -hmm. I think that's what they're referencing. Could be. Um, Could you know, be. I mean, having witnessed the trial, I think we have a pretty good idea of what they're referring to in most of these cases. But mm -hmm. right out of the gate, it was immediately discussed that this was connected to a conspiracy that began in Arizona. Uh -huh. And there were some state, there were some things said about Charles Vallow and about that whole situation. And that's where the 404B issues are coming in, but we'll get yeah. to that. But I, I suspect that's what it is. We'll see. Because uh -huh. then here we are with 404B. Did the court err in allowing the government to produce evidence of other crimes or acts against the defendant under Rule 404B, Idaho Rules of Evidence? So this is, of course, prior bad acts. And the court did allow in a lot of information from Charles Vallow's murder and from the attempted shooting at Brandon Boudreau. Mm -hmm. Cases that we now know, you know, are going to be tried in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of argument about this leading up to trial. Mm -hmm. And then it was um, objected upon. It felt like millions of times during the trial. Right. For but sure. the whole idea of, and Rachel Smith said it, she said this statement at the very beginning, and this summed it all up, which was the common scheme that started in Arizona with all of these folks, and that you had to know about where the common scheme began to understand how it ended. Started mm -hmm. in Arizona, it ended in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're trying to challenge, should the judge have allowed all of that? Right. Uh, let's see. Did the court err in allowing the government to exceed the scope of its order regarding other crimes or acts against the defendant under Rule 404B? So did mm -hmm. the court let the prosecution go too far with that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they argued it over and over again. Um, there were definitely some things that the judge did not allow, lots of things that the judge did allow. Uh, it was pretty difficult to talk about that conspiracy and and demonstrate it without talking about what happened in Arizona uh -huh. with um, Charles Vallow's murder and with attempted shoot with the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreau, mm -hmm. you know, and not to mention the fact that we got very little information about the death of Alex Cox. They did not allow yeah. that, but uh -huh. all these other things did. Mm -hmm. um, this one, this one cracks me up. Did the court err in allowing the government to amend the grand jury indictment two years after the indictment was filed without sending the case back to the grand jury? <laughs> that was oh. argued to pieces and both the judge oh. and the prosecution brought multiple cases to the table where such has been done and that you can do it right up to the time that the jury starts deliberation. Right. The that whole law says until the prosecution rests their case they can amend it yeah. also if it really comes down to it fine drop the grand theft charges that has nothing that has so little bearing mm -hmm. on this case it was about the 
mistakes made in the way that the grand uh, the grand theft charges were written. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst thing they could do is just drop them, and that would still mean nothing because she's got wow. three consecutive life sentences to serve. The worst thing they could do is trigger a new trial over it, but they absolutely well, true. won't. They won't. No, especially because it was such a minor part of this case. Mm-hmm. That even if they just said, "Fine, we're going to just drop that completely," mm-hmm. it changes nothing. No, but they also approved six ways to Sunday, but that is the law in Idaho, and right. that, that, that the prosecution didn't like, or the defense didn't like it, you know, right. and accused him of being shady and stuff. But the truth is, they had the legal right to do it. They did. I mean, the judge was mad at the end of the trial when mm-hmm. he granted them permission to do this. Mm-hmm. But he said, the law is with them. We can't not do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is interesting. Did the court err in allowing the jury to hear statements of co-conspirators that then rule in jury instructions that the government need not prove those persons were part of the conspiracy? Unindicted co-conspirators. Unnamed mm-hmm. co-conspirators. Yeah. I mean, interesting. it is part of the conspiracy law. Mm-hmm. So although that's a question, I don't, I, I think I'd have a lot answers it pretty clearly. Uh-huh. Um, the grant, when the grand jury indictment put the defendant on notice that she is charged with a conspiracy involving five or more people. Oh, here we go. Five or more people. Can the trial court ignore that finding and instead proceed with standard conspiracy jury instructions? <laughs> this part <gasps> this drives me insane. Uh-huh. Because in the grand jury indictment, it says, Lori. Chad, Alex, mm-hmm. and other named or unnamed co-conspirators with an S. Mm-hmm. So Archibald will die on this hill that that is mm-hmm. Lori, Alex, Chad, and two other people because it said or conspirators more. or more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet those conspirators were never actually named by name. Many mm-hmm. of them did testify. But they were not indicted. Uh, this one cracks me up because mm-hmm. it's such just semantics. And it's been argued to pieces. And literally the judge, when they argued this, the judge looked as puzzled as the prosecution did. Like, mm-hmm. the prosecution's like, there could be a hundred co-conspirators. It doesn't matter. Right. Like, what is no actual number was ever argument. given. This is yeah. just, yeah. This is, mm-hmm. talk about nitpick something that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. When the grand jury indictment puts the defendant on notice that she is charged. Oh, never mind. Just said that one. Did the government can commit fundamental reversible error in its closing statement to the jury? So I'm going to go ahead and get in front of this and say that was probably not a typo in the beginning. They've done it twice. So, yeah. Yeah. I, again, I think it goes back to mentioning the prior bad acts, mentioning the mm-hmm. stuff that was allowed with the 404B mm-hmm. issue that was allowed with talking about Charles Vallow's death and the, and the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreaux. Yep. Should the judge have stopped them and said, you can't talk about that. Right. Uh, yeah. Did the court err when it granted without a hearing, the government's objection to the defense request for the court to review all mitigation evidence submitted by the defense for sentencing? Oh, <laughs> So, first of all, Lori refused to participate in her pre-sentencing evaluations. She mm-hmm. wouldn't do them. So, did those get submitted to the judge? No, they did not because she didn't do them. Yeah. 
And we have what happens is the mitigation specialist got all the stuff right from the defense, from the prosecution, yeah. to the judge to say, this is what we have. This is what should be a mitigating factor. This is what should be an aggravating factor. Well, okay. The mitigation specialist chose what was most important to present to the judge. Uh-huh. They did not present everything that Archibald's team handed over. So that's what Archibald is talking about. That and the yeah. fact that the actual, like, the gain report, all that stuff that Lori was supposed to do herself, uh-huh. she refused to do. Yeah. And it's up to the mitigation specialist to determine what's the most important and write that report uh-huh. for the judge. Yeah. So it sounds like shady stuff when it is not shady no. stuff. That's literally their job. It's what they do. Yeah. They're not doing anything wrong. They're doing their job. And and they have no control over whether the defendant does her part or not. And if yeah, she doesn't, Lori's well, choice. that's just going to be to her detriment. Right. And the judge explained that to her again in sentencing. Look, if yeah. I would have had anything from you to look over, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should a new sentencing hearing be held due to the sentencing court not reviewing all mitigation evidence submitted by the defense? Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same issue. Yeah. Uh, did the sentencing court abuse its discretion by ordering the defendant to serve three consecutive fixed life sentences without parole? I can literally hear everyone screaming over this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because it was up to the judge, and the judge was very, very clear uh-huh. in the aggravating circumstances around surrounding these crimes uh-huh. that caused him to give her consecutive rather than concurrent sentences. Uh-huh. Yeah. And her, however, attorneys- they will study this and study case law and decide mm-hmm. is that exactly the sentence she could get. Sometimes mm-hmm. when these cases go in for appeal, the sentences get adjusted. It's not unheard of. It's It's rare, but it's not unheard of. It's possible that they look it over and they go, ah, yeah, according to the law, we can't do that. So we're going to consider this or, or a new sentencing hearing, which I think would be extremely rare, but uh, Mm -hmm. at any rate, it could happen that they could look it over and decide, nope, he was outside of his scope. I think it's unlikely because judge Boyce was not emotional. Judge Boyce was really careful if he didn't know, we'd have a recess for him to go find out. He studied everything. He was ready. He was very prepared. I would be yeah. really surprised if anything from the sentencing had any double look to it, uh, just because he was really, really on top of it. He was, and he was very clear about explaining his reasoning and why. And he went through the mitigating circumstances and he went through the aggravating circumstances. It was clear that he had made a very measured decision there. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. Sure. Does it mean she's going to get out of prison? No. Oh gosh, no. No. Because a jury of her peers found her guilty and that's going to stand. And that's the most important part of this is that appeals courts do not like to overturn juries. No. Decisions. They don't. Uh, did the sentencing court abuse its discretion when it ordered the defendant who had been found indigent, qualified for a public defender, and had just been ordered to serve life in prison without parole to pay $165,018 in fines and court costs? Oh. I mean, mm. cry me a river. 
you know, we, we are aware that she had just been convicted, that she is indigent and she is in prison, but those were all for things that she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, is that fine going to get paid? Probably not. <laughs> well, I, I mean, mean, okay, let's go to a really wild place for a minute. Okay, let's hear it. If you guys, <laughs> if you guys remember about six months ago, it was in the news that R. Kelly, the rapper, yes. uh, had, you know, he's in prison for basically ever for all of the sexual assault crimes that he has committed. Uh, yeah. He's just the worst. But that mm-hmm. doesn't stop crazy people in this country from supporting him like we see everyone else, you know. Mm-hmm. Hell, even Brian Koberger has some women that are want to marry him, for God's sake. But anyway, right. so R. Kelly had so many fans putting money on his books that he had $20,000 on his books. And the court went, bitch, you don't get $20,000 on your books when you owe the court a gazillion Mm -hmm. dollars. And so they seized that money and they applied it to all of his fines. And I'm not saying people are gonna give Lori that kind of money, but I don't know that because people are nuts. Yes. But it's possible that she will have some streams of income it's also possible that she could have like an inheritance or something like that. It's possible that somehow, some way, there would be some money in her name down mm-hmm. the road that the state of Idaho would take. Right. Which is true. It's also that possible, possible that once she's established in whatever prison she ends up residing in, whether it's Idaho or Arizona or whatever, that she could work. And if she does, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's for minimal money, but she... I believe is allowed to keep a little of it for her own purposes, but a lot right. of that would go to the state. So yeah. it it is not impossible to think that at least a small portion of that bill could be paid in some be. ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how the judge came to that dollar amount. There, there are laws and rules in place about where that comes from. I don't know. Could an appellate court decide that that's too much money? They could. I don't know. They could. The plural clutching of that one really cracks me up, though. Right after Lori was sentenced to life in prison for a million times, then she was ordered to pay $165. Is that fair? Yeah. $165,000. Really? Yeah. I know. It is. It's really gross. Like, uh, okay, but those are fines and restitution and shit for murder. Right. It, so that, that, that was really rude to do to Lori. Oh. Well, and, you know, up through her trial, the state has spent upwards of $7 million on her. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. Is it that rude of them to yeah. <laughs> want a little of it back? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. if the I, I have not looked into the rules because I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll get reduced. Maybe they'll yeah. say. It no, could happen. It could happen. Yeah. yeah, it could. So then they talk about that there's a portion of the record that is sealed. And that portion that is sealed has to do with her um, competency hearings. And so the appellant is requesting um, that those transcripts be also handed over to the Supreme Court. So they would be hearings on defendant's competency to stand trial, the hearings to determine if defendant should be sent back to the mental hospital, all pretrial hearings on motions, including motions to remand the case back to the grand jury, motions to determine if character evidence was appropriate, and the scope of that evidence, motions regarding the government's discovery violations, 
motions regarding the death penalty. They want to make sure that all this stuff goes back. Right. Um, all, all of the hearings that have to do with uh, voir dire, uh, opening statements, closing statements, all the stuff that we already know is going to go because it's part of the trial. Yeah. Um, all hearings between the jury trial and the sentencing, so anything that happened in between, which we know there was, mm-hmm. uh, including motion for a new trial. Yeah, we heard that one. That was hilarious. Um, motions regarding victim impact statements and objections to the pre-sentence report and the sentence hearing. They want all of that unsealed and mm-hmm. handed off to the Supreme Court, which of course it should be. And they want that all of the court, all of the standard clerk's record to be handed off to mm-hmm. you. So they have everything. Yeah. Which is, of course, expected and standard and not outrageous. This is just, I, I'm seeing people get pretty upset about this. And I'm like, guys, this is just the way law works. It's just the way it, it happens. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a part of um, our legal rights and as they are protected, um, yeah. you know, and, and is our system perfect? Fuck no. And, you know, do people need appeals because they are um, incorrectly or unjustly convicted? Yes, it does happen. So this process needs to happen. But just because they're moving their way through the process doesn't mean that this conviction, these convictions will get overthrown. It doesn't mean she's getting out of prison. It doesn't mean any of those things. Right. Just means that the system is working as it's supposed to on her behalf to make sure that this person legitimately should be in prison for this amount all of that time for the uh crimes that she was convicted of that that was all done appropriately yeah and if these parts of the process upset you just remember that if it was you or if it was a family member you would also want this process to be Mm -hmm. upheld you would want this process to be respected it's okay everything is okay And the thing is, the appeals process is tremendously slow. Oh, it yeah. takes years for this to for this process to play itself out. And in the meantime, you know who's sitting in prison? That'd be Lori Vell. She's yeah. not going anywhere. No. And in the meantime, she's going to go off to Arizona and get tried over there. And they're going to figure all this stuff out. And, mm-hmm. you know, years from now, this will be, you know, some kind of a review will come forward. They, yep. they, there will be some kind of presentation either to the appeals court or the Supreme Court, depending on what they do, mm-hmm. um, with, you know, written and verbal documentation on the uh, defense side and on the prosecution side. And then mm-hmm. that court will determine if there are any changes that need to be made. But yep. it's a long, long ways away and she's not going anywhere. Nope. So worry not. All is well. And mm-hmm. but it is interesting. It's going to be interesting to see who her new attorney is. Because mm-hmm. uh, it seems like every time Lori gets a new attorney, we get a fresh batch of uh, hilarity or interest, at least. I'm expecting mm-hmm. that again because this whole thing has been wacky. And so I'm well, there. Now she's, she's giving up Archibald, who has been her champion, her, except when her he new rocks. Yeah. Chad. And his stupid book's ugly. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how she does with the new attorney. I will crack me up if the appellate attorney is a woman. I have thought, I have long thought that Lori would really struggle with a female attorney mm-hmm. because uh, she knows she has no sway mm-hmm. in that situation. Yep. She needs a man to cozy so, up to. Yeah. She does. Yeah. So we shall see what happens. We don't know what's going to happen, but. What we do know is that everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
I'm going to guess that Archibald cannot wait for this day. I'll bet he is so ready to be turned loose and be able to send the last of his shit to the next person and be like, walk that bitch, right? Well, and we also know that Thomas has a trial coming up, a murder trial coming up in October that is of interest to us. It's in the uh, shooting, the murder of Nick Bird that happened in Idaho Falls. Mm-hmm. And he is the public defender for the defendant in that case coming up in October. And we're going to have a close eye on that one. So, we are. We'll be talking you know, these, these are busy guys that are, you know, they're public very defenders around public here. Defenders yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure they are so ready to wash their hands of Lori and move forward that. I mean, they did lose epically. So I would imagine that they're ready to find <laughs> something else because they got their asses handed to them in this case. And not that I even blame them because I don't think that they had much to go on. And frankly, that Nick Bird murder case, they don't have much to go on there either because that guy, oh, yeah, man. he was a big fan of confessing on social media. Um, <laughs> but we will we will be sharing that case with you in that trial with you because these poor guys really. <laughs> I know. I look at some of these cases and I think, oh, my God, I would hate to be a public defender in a case like that. Surely behind closed doors, I look at these cases going, for God's sake. Will you all just what shut up? What do we do with this? Yeah. yeah. Well, with Lori, what do you do? She refused to participate in her own defense 90% yeah. of the time. How are you supposed to help that? And refuse to allow them to use mental health as uh, an argument. That's one of the things that I think mm-hmm. will be interesting in the rulings from the appellate court, uh, there was, you know, several questions there about her, you know, did they treat her fairly uh, in regards to mental health? But we also know that she refused to use mental health as a defense. She refused yeah. to use it as a uh, defense in sentencing. She refused to let that be used and brought up at all. Yeah. Kind of interesting that they're trying that now because uh, she had refused to let that be a thing at all. Right. Most definitely. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. So we will we will keep you up on all of the happenings. And as soon as we know who that appellate attorney is, we're going to let you know what we know about them. Yeah. Uh, it is a Wednesday. If you're watching this on a Wednesday, we will be live tonight at 7 p.m. Mountain with our uh, live case updates live stream. We're going to update a lot. A lot of stuff is going on in a lot of cases, my friends. We have yeah, there is. plenty to share. Mm-hmm. And well, you know it. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. And we are the True Crime Squad. Take care.